it is a really important season. It is football season. Yeah. Uh, how many football fans in the house? Any, any football fans? Okay, yeah. Uh, I am uh, a fan of America's team. That's right, the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, but they're terrible, and so there's not a lot for us to talk about there. Um, yep, yep, they're, uh, they're in the worst division, and they are terrible. Um, so, uh, but I don't, I don't know if you guys are aware or not. Uh, you may have heard this uh, somewhere, but there's an election this week. Um, I don't know if you're kind of vaguely aware of that. Uh, but I have found, in my experience, I've been a pastor for uh, 25 years, and um, I have found uh, that it has been... I can't believe I've been anything for 25 years other than alive. That's, that hurts um, as an adult. But I have found in church that it has been really, really difficult to avoid the topic of religion in church. Uh, but it has been pretty easy to avoid the topic of politics at church. But with that said, uh, we are not a place that will ever shy away from uh, any. Uh, difficult conversation, especially when there are things that Jesus said and Jesus did, things that God says in the scriptures that actually intersect directly and specifically with what we're wrestling with in our culture. So uh, we're actually going to take a couple of weeks starting today, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, sort of before the election, post-election, uh, regardless of whatever the results end up being, uh, and we're actually going to go there. And so uh, I told the I told uh, all of our volunteers that were huddled up this morning that uh, this might be our last Sunday. Uh, we've had a good run, five weeks, and uh, because everybody's, everybody's going to be mad after today. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but but the, honestly, when you look around the world right now, the world is kind of on fire. And uh, everybody's ready to fight. Everyone has their news and their sources and their facts. And the spin is nonstop. I mean, there's no part of our lives that isn't touched by politics in some way. Uh, social media is a dumpster fire on most days. Um, everything is us versus them. There's very little, especially when it comes to politics, very little respect, very little civility. Uh, it, it feels like there's this overwhelming sense of divisiveness almost in every conversation. In fact, uh, uh, we were laughing a little bit earlier today because I had posted, uh, I had made a post uh, the, earlier this week on my own Facebook page, just saying, hey, we're going to be talking about this uh, very conversation. Literally, it was all, it was just an announcement. We're going to be talking about politics. And uh, you could just feel the comments uh, starting to go, you know, uh, people just wanting to start a fight in the comments. So uh, it, it's uh, no matter what conversation it is, it's always feels like it's right on the verge of being divisive or it just goes full-blown name-calling, everything is demonized and label and snark and sarcasm. And, and to be honest, um, it, it, I think if most of us are honest, most of us aren't necessarily that innocent either. I mean, which is hard to admit because we think, like, I'm not full of hate, right? I, I haven't been hateful, but if we just replace the word hateful with snarky or rude or sarcastic or maybe the occasional disrespectful, all of a sudden, it's a little bit easier for most of us to kind of begin to see ourselves in that mirror. And more and more and more, it seems like nothing dominates our conversation, nothing dominates our priorities, especially in our culture right now, like politics. And, uh, and, and that's because nothing drives us like fear. Nothing moves us, nothing motivates us like fear. The problem is, is that nothing divides us like fear either. 
And you've seen it. People that you know reacting in ways that are crazy and maybe shocking, and not necessarily because of the position they hold, but because of the way that they go about expressing that position. And it's everywhere. And it's definitely, I don't know what it's been like for you, but I have a, you know, a certain side of the fence, but publicly, most of the time, uh, on social media, I'm pretty down the middle, and so I have lots of friends on both sides of the aisle, uh, but it has become increasingly vitriolic, right? And, and it's doing damage to relationships, it's doing damage to us as a people, and people turning their backs on lifelong friendships and family members who have stopped speaking to, uh, to each other, and people that are, are leaving their spiritual communities, and those who have known and lived next to and served alongside each other for years now aren't on speaking terms and they blocked each other on social media and they won't even look at each other if they bump into one another at the grocery store. And, and even if you've been able to sort of stay out of most of the ugliness, sometimes it kind of feels like it's only a matter of time before it's kind of brought to your doorstep. And so everybody's tired, everybody's frustrated. I, I think there's a, a great bit of confusion because the current environment has left so many of us with these gaping wounds and created what feels like uncrossable distances between us and people we know, people we care about, maybe our neighbor, maybe a family member, maybe some friends. And, and maybe the worst part of all of it is that I, I think we're mostly starting to kind of get used to it, right? Where, where people live on the edge uh, and constant tension of what to say and not what not to say and what to believe and what not to believe and nothing is neutral and nothing is nuanced and so many people are afraid of saying the wrong thing or being misunderstood. People are wound up super tight and kind of ready to snap over things that matter and, well, and snap over things that don't really matter and, and, and all of which obviously just increases that uncrossable distance, that divide that's between us and people that, are, that, that think differently than us or vote differently than us. And so everyone kind of sticks with their friends who think like they think and believe like they believe and everybody's sort of stuck in their own little echo chamber and everybody's driven by fear and confirmation bias and groupthink and it's even more confusing to us maybe to bring it right to our doorsteps for most of us because most of us are followers of Jesus. It's even more confusing to us when the person on the other side of the political conversation is a Christian. We think, wait, 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 what, what, like you're, you're backing who? You're voting for what? I thought, I thought you, I thought you were a Christian. I don't get it. I actually uh, read an article recently uh, that was entitled "In America, Politics Is the New Religion." And in this article, uh, this lady named Ashley Landrum, who's the doctor of communication at uh, Texas Tech University, she actually pointed out she's done a bunch of research, and in her research, she noted that in 1960. Uh, only 5% of Americans said that they would be unhappy if their son or daughter married someone who was from a different political party or a different political belief. And, you know, in contrast to that, they were very concerned if their children married somebody who had a different understanding or a different view of God, a different religion. And you fast forward 50 years to 2010, and, uh, and, and by today's standards, 2010 <laughs> seems like it was the good old days where we were just all nice to each other, right? And everybody got along and and, but in 2010, 40% of people, so it was 5% in 1960, and, and it was 40% in 2010, said that they'd be very upset if their kid married somebody from a different political party, but they didn't really care anymore if they, believed, if, if they married somebody that believed differently about God. Now, here was her point. Her point was that we used to prioritize spiritual values over political values. 
But now, more and more and more in our culture, political values override everything else. And then she went on to say this, this was a direct quote. She said, when people are caught between their church and their political party, what they end up doing is defaulting to what the party line is. Now, if she's right, that's really bad news for me today. Um, because I'm going to try to like advocate for a different, a, a different way. I, I'm going to try to shift the conversation uh, because, and, and here's the deal. I, I'm always going to come at these conversations. I'm a Bible guy. I'm a Jesus guy. And so I'm going to come at the conversation specifically from the scriptures and specifically from Jesus. And so, um, but I, I believe that we can actually move the needle in a different direction and that better is possible than what we currently have. And that's why we're doing this series. Now, maybe you're thinking like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My political views don't stem from fear. They stem from my faith. That's why I'm a Republican, because of my faith. To which somebody else would say, but wait, wait, wait. That, that can't be because that's why I'm a Democrat, because of my faith. Now, the truth is, for all of us, is our political ideologies, our political ideas and values they're shaped by a whole bunch of things, one of which, if we're a follower of Jesus, one of which is our faith. But, but they're, they're shaped in large part by so many other things, where we grew up, how we were raised, our level of education, where we went to school, what we've been told, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what people we know and love and care about, what, they, what, they've, what they have experienced. So how do we begin with all of this uncrossable, dis- how do we begin to move forward together? Now, Jesus actually had a lot to say about this, not necessarily about our election. I looked for it. Trump's name's not in the Bible, you guys. I searched. I, 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 I looked really hard. Uh, it's not there. Um, but Jesus had a lot to say, not about our election, but certainly about division. In fact, his very last prayer was about that very thing. And John, one of his disciples, one of his friends, um, recorded this recorded the prayer for us. And so it's found in John chapter 17. I'm going to read verse 11. The prayer is a a little bit long. And so I just pulled out a couple of excerpts from the prayer, Uh, but at verse 11 and then verses 20 and 21. And this is what it says. Uh, This is Jesus praying. He says, now I'm departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. So he's talking to God. Holy father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. Verse 20, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who who will ever believe in me through their message. So he's praying for you and me. He says, I pray that they will also be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Now, why would this be the very last thing that Jesus prays for? Well, I think it's because Jesus knew what we're like. He knew what humanity's like. He knew that we find all kinds of ways to divide ourselves up, and then we try to cancel those people who are in a different group. So in the first century Israel, right, you had Jews and Gentiles and Romans and Samaritans and men and women, slaves and slave owners and soldiers and civilians and rich and poor and educated and illiterate, And people were divided up by all of those things. In 21st century America, we have black and white and brown and upper class and middle class and single and married and gay and straight and privileged and underprivileged and R's and D's and donkeys and elephants and Raider fans even. They can even, they're accepted in America now. 
only in certain places. And Jesus prays that all of these people then and now would be united, unified as one in his family. Now, there's always been divisions. In the early movement of Jesus, in the early church, they didn't vote. They didn't, they, they didn't have the right to vote. They were given an emperor or a king. So their beefs with one another weren't, uh, weren't political. They weren't about politics. But check this out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul actually had to write to one of the churches that was being very divided, and they were arguing about stuff. And, and beginning with verse 10, uh, this is a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in a city called Corinth. He says, I appeal, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Then he gets really specific. He said, for some members of Chloe's household, it's always Chloe's household. Some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. So we, we, get, we don't always um, get exactly what he's talking about because sometimes there's things lost in translation when it's coming from, uh, you know, when it's coming from Greek and into the Latin and then from Latin into English. Um, but the world, like these are, these are knock down, drag, you know, drag out arguments. And he says, verse 12, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos or I follow Peter or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in my name? Of course not. Of course not. Now, those arguments, that may seem like a silly thing to you and I for us to argue over, but they were having personality, get this, they were having personality-led divisions. Personality-led divisions, which sounds a little bit familiar. Because the truth is, we attach ourselves to people and then rally to their cause or their beliefs or their movements. And, and, and the hard part about this is, uh, is even when we don't do that, right? Even when we're committed to principles, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this, uh, this example. Being a Cowboys fan, um, going way back, I was born into it. Um, I hated with a passion Deion Sanders when he played for the San Francisco 49ers. Anybody remember that? It was terrible. Those were dark, dark days. But when he switched and came to my team, I was like, that's my boy, Dion." Right? That's what we do in, in all of these areas, right? So Jesus and now the Apostle Paul were going, look, look, don't. don't don't do that. Why, why do you divide yourselves up like that? Why are you, why are you attracted to, to that thing? Why do you attach yourself to that personality? Why are you making this the dividing line? Why are you separating yourself? Why are you fighting with somebody over that thing? There's something bigger at play. There's too much at stake. Now listen, it's not that politics and political outcomes don't matter. They do. It's just that there are things that matter more. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the conversation that, that Paul and Jesus would have with us today. See, there's no doubt that our elections have real-world real world consequences that are significant. They're not minor. But so often, we allow those whose only motivation is profit or power to convince us that, that because that's the case, because the, that there's a real world outcome that's at stake, that the ends somehow now justify the means, that we can 
do whatever we want and say whatever we want to one another as long as they're on the other side. We dehumanize each other. We demonize each other. I mean, just zoom out for just a second. Like if, if you were to, to fly around the world, you had family and friends that live somewhere abroad, like it could be any, you know, Japan, any, any country, Japan, or Italy, whatever. Let's just pick England, right? Because they speak our language. So you have family and friends that live in England. You fly over there. You're visiting them. You're having a party. Everybody's hanging out. Everybody's having a good time. And then this big giant argument, like this family reunion, this beautiful moment of connection and love and friendship and all this stuff starts to go sour because two people fight and they start fighting and they're fighting about politics and one is you know identifies with this way and the other one identifies this way and 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 what would you do like you would just be like hey guys time out time out this is like look 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 we we all love each other like like we we're a family we're friends there's 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 more important stuff than you wouldn't care about the political differences in that country because you're not invested right that's and 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 here's the thing that's just one country versus another. You're actually from a completely different kingdom. As, follower of, as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be from a completely different kingdom. We're from a third place. So you can have your opinions, absolutely. You can vote, absolutely. You should vote 100%. You can feel strongly about those things, and you should. But it shouldn't divide you. It shouldn't drive how you treat other human human beings. See, the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for, it isn't natural. It's supernatural, which is why he prayed for it. But I believe that unity is possible, but it's not going to happen unless we become intentional. Unless we decide that we're going to begin to, to, to work towards it. It starts with how we think about ourselves, how we see ourselves when it comes to politics, how we see ourselves when it comes to the issues of the day. And it starts with us choosing to filter our politics through Jesus instead of filtering Jesus through our, through our politics. See, Jesus refused to allow himself to be pulled into any of the political debates of the day. I don't know if you've noticed this, but everybody wants Jesus on their side in politics. Everybody does. Uh, and and it, was no, it's no, it was no different in the first century, where people would bring him a coin, should we give this to God or to Caesar, right? He's having a conversation with a lady at a well, and she's immediately turning it political and saying, well, you're not supposed to be talking to me, I'm a Samaritan, and you're a Jew, and you're a man, and I'm a woman, all these political sort of forces at play in their conversation. But Jesus never allowed anybody to drag him into any political conversation. Now, it was obviously different then, but things were very, very politically divided in Jesus's day, maybe even more so than they are today. See, Israel had been conquered by Rome, and there were, there were four Jewish, four primary Jewish political groups in Jesus's day. There were the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders and the the keepers of the Jewish law, and their political view was deeply rooted in the Jewish law, in the Jewish Old Testament. Then you had the Sadducees who were kind of these uh, 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 aristocrats who had lots of money and they represented kind of the high priesthood and they were friends with and sort of cozied up to the Roman government. 
And they really liked the existing system because they had favor with all the Roman rulers. You had the Essenes. They were people like John the Baptist. That's who he was. He who wanted to kind of withdraw and isolate from culture and society and politics. And they didn't want to have really anything to do with anybody or anything that had that sort of, you know, uh, uh, society sort of dynamic to it. They wanted to go out in the desert and sort of just live a communal life and just sort of ignore, ignore all of the political stuff. And then you had the zealots, and they were hardcore about freeing Israel from the hands of Rome. And they wanted insurrection, and they would start riots, and they would often kill Roman officers. Now, it was far more complicated than even that. But even if it was just those four groups, right? Because you had, you had uh, the nation of Israel with a king that was just kind of a, a puppet king in Herod, but he had real power and he was a brutal dictator. You had Rome and the centurions and you had all these dynamics. Now here's the point. All of those groups wanted Jesus on their side, but he wouldn't identify with any of them. The message and the way of Jesus is bigger than the temporary political passions of the day. And I have to tell you, for these people, there was more at stake for them than there, than there is for us. There's a lot at stake for us politically, no matter which way you swing. But there was way more at stake for them in what was going in the world they lived in. And yet Jesus still refused to side with any sort of political faction because his message and his way was bigger than those temporary political passions of the day. The only reason we know anything about the politics, the most of us know anything about the politics of Jesus' day is because they were footnotes in the story of Jesus, which is not a political story. It's a story of redemption of humanity. See, Pete, Jesus loved people no matter where they landed politically. And they could all be a part of his movement. He had zealots that were a part of his movement. Some of his, in fact, when you read the scriptures and it says, you know, that he had a guy, a guy named Simon who was the zealot. Uh, like, he had people who were his disciples, his followers, who, who were advocating the violent overthrow of Rome, right? That, that's, he had Essenes who followed him because John the Baptist was in a scene, and, and the people who followed him and his disciples were a scene. <clears throat> and there was a, a moment in the, in the story of Jesus and John where all of his followers leave John and start following Jesus. Jesus regularly rubbed elbows with and had conversations with Nicodemus and other Pharisees. But his focus was his mission, his cause, his movement. He was above all the political infighting. And Listen, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is who he's called us to be. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had risen from the dead, Jesus is with his disciples, and this was their main question. I, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around why this was their main question. Um, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? They were asking him a political question, right? He, the son of God just died on the cross, was buried, came back to, came back from, to, to life, appears to them. There, he's having a conversation. He's appeared 
multiple times to over 500 of them. He's, he's hanging out with his disciples after the resurrection. And the thing that's just pressing most on them is like, okay, no, but seriously, uh, what are you going to do about this po- political thing? Like, what are you going to do about Rome? Like, is, is, is right now the time where you're going to free us and like restore our kingdom? We're going to kill all those Romans? Yeah, like, they, they tell me, like, is this, that's what happened in God? See, the, the disciples were thinking, guys, like, how can they stop us? They killed our leader, and he came back to life. We got this, right? So they keep asking Jesus, Lord, are you going to conquer the Romans and give the Jewish people our nation back? And look at Jesus' reply in verse 7 and 8. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, but they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So Jesus answers them and basically says in so many words, that's not really something you should be concerned about because that's not your job. That's not your priority, right? The thing that you should be concerned about, your priority should be to take the message of my love and my life with you to people everywhere. Now, here's the deal. We're not really that different from those disciples, right? Praying, God, is it now that you're gonna conquer those crazy liberals and push back those that are threatening our religious freedom? Lord, has the time finally come for you to defeat Trump and for good to triumph over hate? To which I think Jesus would say to everybody praying those kinds of prayers, that's not really what you should, that shouldn't be at the top of your list. That really isn't what you should be concerned about. Yes, vote, but your job, your priority is to take the message of my love and my life with you to all people everywhere, including to those who vote and think differently than you. Jesus always elevated the conversation above politics into something more important, into something bigger, deeper, more profound. So John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says this. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment and we cannot understand how powerful these words are that he's about to say. Even that phrase. He's speaking to people who believe all the commandments have already been given. The only person who can give commandments is God. And Jesus steps up and says, now I'm giving you a new commandment. So he's saying, look, God has not, the, the last word hasn't been spoken. I'm God. I'm going to give you a new commandment. This is what it is. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Now, if while I'm talking in this conversation, you're a follower of Jesus, inside you feel pushback and resistance, and you're thinking, yeah, but what about, and they started, and this, that, and, you know, and this, and that, and this priority, and I'm telling you, your priorities are misplaced. See, this is his heart for us. This is his command. This is not a suggestion. His prayer for you and I is that we would live united by one mission, one message, one way of operating, one way of being in the world. And what's that mission? It's leading everyone everywhere to follow Jesus. 
What's our message is that Jesus came to restore all things to God through himself. What's our MO? What's our default method of operation? It's that we go and we love everyone, 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 like Jesus loves us. Yes, even conservatives. Yes, even liberals. Yes, even Trump lovers. Yes, even whatever. Insert whatever you want there. See, God's desire isn't that we're all the same. That's not what he's saying. It's that we would be unified by his heart for humanity. Now, maybe it makes you uncomfortable, but the church, the movement of Jesus, not not our church, the church, big C, the, the, the body of Christ, the movement of Jesus is bigger than America. Just so you guys would all love me, I thought, wouldn't it be great, somebody suggested this earlier, wouldn't it be great if I'd have gotten some, some local guy who owns a bald eagle to just come stand next to me, just flanked by bald eagles? Then you would know that I love America, because I do. I'm, I'm a weepy patriot. But the movement, the body of Christ, the church, is bigger than the United States. Now, you can't tell right now, but... In high school, I played high school basketball. Um, that's not, my wife laughed. I don't know why. That's not a joke. That was not a joke. That was actually a true story, all right? Um, uh, in sports, obviously, there's three sides, right? There's the two teams, and then you have the refs. So in high school, uh, I went to a small high school and, and, um, and was starting point guard for a little while, and I was not that great, but they didn't have a lot of options. And so, uh, but we played, we, we were actually a pretty decent team, and, uh, and we played some dirty teams. We, we, played, we played teams that, um, like, that liked to clutch and grab and pull shorts down and step on shoes and untie shoes and just anything they could do to get an edge, which is not cool when you're playing basketball. Uh, and so we played some dirty teams. Uh, and, and honestly, we could handle almost anything that got thrown at us from the team standpoint, right? We just accepted it as part of the game. But what nobody, and if you, you are an athlete or you've been on a team, right, or you've had a kid that's played in sports, right, what nobody would tolerate are referees who tried to steer the game one way or the other. Now, there, there's maybe not a more thankless job on the planet than being a referee in a high school sports game. Uh, but, but in sports, there's, there's a, if there's, when there's a foul on the play, the refs get together in the middle of the court or in the middle of the field and have a discussion, right? And, and, and rarely, if ever, have I ever seen the refs fight with each other in that moment. Like, you said there was a foul, and there wasn't a foul on that play. No, they have a conversation. Even if they disagree, they sit there and talk it out, right? They have a discussion about what the teams have just done, and they work to come to a place of agreement. And, and honestly, I think this is how we should see ourselves. This is how we, as, the follow, as followers of Jesus, as the church of Jesus Christ, should relate to one another in the game of politics. Because there's definitely two teams, but we're not supposed to be on either team. We're supposed to think like referees. And the refs shouldn't be fighting with each other about what's going on in the game. The refs, how crazy would it be if a ref got so mad he ran over and put on a jersey and put himself in the game? Everybody would tase the guy, tackle him, drag him out. Don't tase me, bro. Like, it would be chaos. See, we're supposed to look objectively at the fouls committed on both sides by both teams because they are 
I know you think your side doesn't commit any fouls, but they do. We're supposed to look at the fouls committed by both sides and both teams and then meet and discuss the values that we're going to embrace and come to the conclusion on our own as people whose calling transcends the game itself. That's the position we're supposed to be taking. It is not a call to be apolitical. It's not a call to abandon the game and its outcome. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a, but it is a call for us to change seats, for us to shift our role. See, the question becomes, are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your political opinions? Are you willing to follow Jesus even when following him creates space between you and your party's platform or between you and your favorite candidate? Because here's the truth, and I want you to hear me on this no matter where you swing politically. If, Jesus, if the Jesus you're following agrees with everything you believe politically, chances are you're not actually following Jesus. You have filtered him through your politics, not the other way around. It's possible, it's possible, I believe with all of my heart, for us to move forward and move toward one another and close the gap and close the divide and cross the distance, even when it seems inevitable, even when connection seems impossible, but it takes love and grace and humility. It takes conversation and connection because love will shrink the space between us. Our priority should be what Jesus prayed for over what our party stands for. Have a party by all means, like a political one and an actual party. Vote passionately. Be involved in what you believe in politically. But when it comes to ultimately what drives your life, when it comes to ultimately what the kingdom and the message of Jesus is about, that red stuff and that blue stuff takes a back seat to the person, Jesus. So much of the conversation in our culture centers around how do I get them to change their minds? By the way, no one has ever changed their mind on social media about anything. The culture, the conversation we have culturally is the underlying theme of it is how do I prove you wrong? How do I get them, how do I get you to see like I see? How do I get you to see how right I am? And so we beat the drum and we show how righteous we are and we show how passionate we are and we pull Jesus into it and then we quote this and we say this and then, and it just escalates from there. The conversation is driven by how do I get them to come to my side and be like me? But what if instead of, of seeing each other as people to change or convince, what if we just saw those different from us as people to understand, people to honor, people to respect, people that God loves. What, what if we decided we were going to actually follow the command of Jesus and love everyone like he's loved us? See, because Jesus, despite what you may think or feel, 
loves Donald Trump. Jesus, despite what you may think or feel, loves Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They're people he created, people he gave his life for. What if we made his mission our mission? What if we made his message our message? What if we made his MO our MO? See, your candidate is going to win or lose based on how America votes in a couple of days. But the church, the movement of Jesus, in my opinion, is going to win or lose based on our behavior as those of us who are followers of Jesus every day leading up to election day and every day after. See, that's, that's why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come so that the world would be capitalistic. As much as capitalism is great. Jesus didn't come so the world would be socialistic. Jesus didn't come and die for certain people in certain places, in certain political outcomes. He came and died so that humanity would step into and be reconnected to our creator. See, the early church in the first century was marked by five things. It was marked by love and serve and acceptance for people no matter what they looked like, where they were from. It was marked by compassion. It was marked by forgiveness. It was marked by care and love for the unborn and for children. And it was marked by being countercultural sexually. When you stop and think about it, it's not that hard to imagine. You take those five things, and I think in our culture, this is what's happening, especially for those of us that are followers of Jesus. People who are Christians and Democrats have grabbed onto a couple of those things when it comes to compassion, justice, People who are Republicans or conservatives have grabbed onto a couple of those things. The fight for the unborn, for adoption, for children. Prioritizing, being countercultural, sexually. The marriage is between a man and what. what right? So you have people who follow Jesus who have identified with a couple of those things. But what if, what if we just decided, like, we're going to be defined by all five of them, not just by a couple of them. And if we decide that, then we don't fit nice and neat in any political box. And we shouldn't. Jesus didn't come. He didn't come for political outcomes. He came to rescue humanity. Let's pray. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Jesus, I I know I got in the way. And Lord, I I pray that um, anything that was said in the last 35 minutes or so, God, that really is not from the heart of God, would just dissipate. But the truth that we've heard together, 
God would stick into our soul, would find its way deep into us. God, I, I believe that it is absolutely heartbreaking to you the way that men and, men and women of faith are treating one another on both sides. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning that you would help us. God, that you would help us take a step back and I know it's really hard because some of us are so entrenched in this conversation. It's very difficult. But Lord, I pray that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. God, that you'd bring compassion and love and grace. Lord, where we've missed the mark. God, thank you that we can be people of grace because we've received grace. And all that we have to give away when we love other people is that you have loved us first. And so God, we go out into the world to love people, to love our neighbors, to love our friends, to love our political opponents and allies, to love those around us and our family, those that see the world differently than us. God, I, I know there's so much more that could be said. Lord, I, I pray and trust you, God, to speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we just surrender our political agendas and ask that you would help us, Lord, prioritize them. Not give them up, but place them in their proper perspective. That the thing that's at the top of your list is not a political outcome. In fact, God, we're, we're taught in the scriptures that everybody that comes into power they only do so because you've allowed them to. So, Lord, we pray for our nation. God, we pray for the elections. God, we pray for our president, his cabinet. We pray for Senator Biden and Harris. God, we pray for everybody involved at every level. Jesus, may the volume be turned down on the rhetoric and the fear. May the church, may we as followers of Jesus lead the charge to step into the middle of the, of the divide with grace and love and humility and begin to bridge the gap that separates so many of us. We thank you for today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.